Would you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John? We're going to start in chapter 2, uh, verse 23, and then we're going to read into chapter 3, verse 21 this morning. I hope you all had a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, so just kind of a little bit of a review of where we've come, come thus far in John. Uh, we've learned that the miracle Jesus performed at the wedding of Cana, I described that to you for our, our uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's, it's just this picture of Jesus bringing something new, a new order of things, a, a, a new and better relationship. It's a, a new wine, you could say, a, a forgiveness that bulls and goats and lambs and turtle doves, none of those things could provide the forgiveness that only Jesus could provide. Um, and then last week in Eric's excellent message on Jesus cleansing the temple and purging it uh, of, of its defilement, he was driving people out who were defiling the temple because the temple was the place where God and man met. It's, it was the one place where there could be some sense of a reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. Uh, it wasn't the best place, but it was the place that God had designed. And these people had made it a mockery with just, it was a den of thieves and just the way they were looking for self-gain instead of for a substitutionary sacrifice. So guys, when we're looking at that, it wasn't just Jesus, you know, I think sometimes that, that's been just portrayed as Jesus flying off the handle and he's just rushing out and he's got this crazy googly eyes, you know, because he's so mad. I don't know that it was like that at all. I, I, I think he wasn't just driving out the, the old. He was bringing in something new. That's what was happening. And he calls himself the better temple. He is the new temple. Jesus would be the perfect place for a holy God and a sinful people to meet. Because he being God the Son and being also fully man is the perfect sacrifice by which men and women can be forgiven of their sins and be made right with God the Father through the sacrifice of the Son of God. So that's, that's what's happening in this book. And so now we're coming to uh, John 3, which is so well known um, as particularly two passages. You must be born again, and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, he's bringing a new life for all who would believe in him. So let's read this morning, John chapter 3, I mean John chapter 2. This is where the chapter breaks don't always serve us well, because it's really, this is this really leads into what is happening in chapter 3. So hear the word of the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and indeed no one and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night 
and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony? If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Oh, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Oh, Lord, uh, we've been praying for fresh eyes for familiar things. Lord, probably no chapter in John do we need to pray that prayer more than John 3. Lord, would you help us see this passage like we've never seen it before? For someone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, would, would, you, would, would they experience what we're going to preach on today? Would they experience the new birth that can only come by your grace and mercy through the death of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, and for those of us who do know you, we ask to be freshly amazed that we're saved and how we were saved and freshly compelled to bring this good news to a world in darkness. Please help us.
God, please help me, the preacher. Please help my precious church family as listeners that you would be glorified and lives changed. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll never forget a story, C.J. Mahaney, who is a pastor, one of the pastors in Sovereign Grace Churches. He told about a pastor named Gordon McDonald. Pastor McDonald had grown up loving superhero stories. So I get a kick out of our younger kids because they think superheroes are new. Um, now he grew up loving superhero stories, comic books and movies. It made such an imprint on his life that he thought he actually had what it took <laughs> to be a superhero himself. He, he thought that what he lacked in superpowers could be made up for with a super heart. <laughs> I just love this stuff. He, he thought that, um, that he could be one who, who could be the rescuer of people, people in trouble. Well, years later, McDonald is now an adult. And he happened to be walking down a crowded, busy street in a large United States city known for its crime. And suddenly he heard the scream of a woman coming from down the street ahead of him in the direction that he's, he's walking toward. And he tried to fix his eyes on what was happening. And, he, and he, he saw two people running toward him. The first was a fairly large man in dark clothing, ball cap pulled down, you know, just to his eyebrows, really, really low, so that people, it'd be harder to uh, get a read on who this guy, guy was and to recognize him. And he was running with a woman's purse in his hand. The second was a panic-stricken and bleeding woman who'd been knocked to the ground by the man who had stolen her purse. His first impulse was, of course, <laughs> da, 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 where's, the, where's the nearest phone booth, right? I mean, it's time to put on my superhero clothes. You know, it's time to spring into action. He, he was going to be the hero he always imagined himself to be. As he started to move toward the purse snatcher, his superhero thoughts were starting to be interrupted by other thoughts, thoughts like this. One thought was wondering whether the man might have a knife or a gun that he might use against him. The next thought was wondering if he was up to date on paying for his life and health insurance. <laughs> it's a true story. And then another thought came in about the well-being of his wife and kids and what if something should happen to him? What would happen to them? In the blink of an eye, the purse snatcher was just a few steps in front of him and this was his chance to prove that he indeed had the heart of a superhero and he, and he, and he did nothing. The thief runs past him. Not long after that, the weeping, bleeding, and now exhausted woman arrived and stopped right where McDonald was. She couldn't run any longer. She had seen McDonald positioned to help her. She thought she saw a look in his eyes that he was going to help her. And when she caught her breath with tears flowing down her cheeks, she asked him, why? Why didn't you help me? Her words at that moment cut deeper than what he thought a bullet or a knife would have done. McDonald had the sobering revelation that the man, listen to the sentence, the man he had always imagined himself to be when given the opportunity 
was not the man he was in reality. I'm guessing all of us have had that experience of being one kind of person in our imaginations only to discover we are really not quite living up to that person that we think we are. Opportunity comes and we had the chance to prove that we were really a certain kind of person only to discover we fell far short of being that person. I, I thought before I was married, I thought I was going to make a pretty decent husband. And then I got married. <laughs> and I realized I'm a rotten husband. I need help to be any kind. I, I struggle to be mediocre as a husband. Are you kidding me? And I learned how much God needed to change me to, so that I could grow to become a good and godly husband. Same thing happened with parenting. Same thing happened with athletics. I was a baseball player, and when I was, when I was young, junior high age, I actually had some pro teams uh, be reaching out to me, getting my statistics and some things. And had a great senior year. I, I won most valuable player of uh, our high school baseball team. And but I, didn't, I got a few junior college offers, but I was pretty arrogant. I thought, D1, that's my destination. Uh, so I went down to New Mexico State. I, I kid with you guys about New Mexico State. And, uh, and I tried to walk on. My goodness. You would have thought I never played baseball in my life. The man I thought I would be on a baseball field when given an opportunity was not the man I was. In reality, same happened with when I worked for Shell Oil Company. The same happens regularly, guys, in seeking to be a pastor, one, a good pastor to you, one of your pastors. You know, it's one thing to discover that your character, your skills are not what you thought when measured by circumstances or what you look like in the eyes of other people. Um, when the evaluation is, is temporal and earthly, I want you to think about this. It's another thing altogether to stand in the presence of God and have him tell you what you're really like when it comes to eternal and heavenly things. That's where we find a man named Nicodemus. That's where we find Nicodemus. The man he thought he was as a student of scripture, a religious and political leader, a man zealous to keep the commandments and do good works, a man who was certainly, certainly, of course, he's on his way to entering into the kingdom of God, isn't he? And oh, how far short he fell on becoming a citizen of heaven. He needed something only Jesus could give him. And isn't this good news? And something Jesus was more than willing to provide him, just like he is for us. And that would be a new birth through a biblical belief in God's love. And we'll unpack what I'm saying there. And, and the biblical belief in God's love is focused on the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And that pretty much sums up the main point of our sermon this morning. It's in your notes. To become a Christian, you must have the new birth that only God can give through a biblical belief in his love as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. So the first point is you must be born again. And what was, why did we start in chapter two? What was all that about? Well, as you know, believe is a key word in the book of John. It's why we called our sermon series, Believe. 
it's used multiple times. And we're, this morning, we're just going to, in, in seven verses, we're going we're gonna to see the word used like seven times in seven verses. And this morning, Jesus is going to really show us that there is a form of belief that people have about Jesus that does not lead to salvation. But they believe. That's what Jesus is about to say in these, these, these uniquely phrased sentences. And there is a belief in him. So notice my, my, my terminology. There is a belief about him that doesn't save. There is a belief in him that saves. And that's what he's going to be unpacking here. Um, believing in Jesus for salvation is so much more than just being a fan of Jesus. I think in Midland, Texas, there's a lot of, lot of fans of Jesus. There's a lot of pro-Jesus people. I'm pro-Jesus. I'm in favor of Jesus. I'm an admirer of Jesus. Well, let's look at what the text says. Verse 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. People believed in him because of the signs he was doing. Interesting there. They saw Jesus as someone sent from God to give them the gifts they wanted. Instead of believing, he was sent from God to give them the gift of God. Now, hear the words. Where are you in that? Do, do, do most of your prayers involve, dear Jesus, I need something from God to help my earthly life be better? Or, Dear Jesus, I'm looking to you as the greatest gift God could ever give me. Big difference there, isn't it? It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. They came to Jesus to get the world instead of coming to Jesus to get God himself. Verse 24, so Jesus, it says, does not entrust himself to them, but they're believers. Well, let's unpack that. What is this talking about? Well, in the word entrust in verse 24 is the same word as believe in verse 23. So this is a way we could paraphrase it. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in their belief. That's kind of a cute way to say it, isn't it? But that's actually what it says. It's actually what it says. The man they thought they were, the man, the people they thought they were, when given an opportunity, when having to stand before the piercing eyes of God, they were not the people they thought they were. They thought their belief wasn't saving belief. And Jesus, though, so he didn't, he didn't believe in their belief. It wasn't a saving belief. He knew all people and did not need anyone to bear witness to him about mankind. So, I, guys, I know that for most of you, this is just going to be a review, but I think it's a helpful review. I think it's a humbling review. I think it's a necessary review for us to stay regularly amazed that we're saved. What did, Pete, what did Jesus know about people? So can you stick your, your nose in the notes? And we're going to go through scripture after scripture. And these are just a smattering. This is nowhere close to exhaustive. Here's what Jesus knew about all people. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what Jesus knew. 
Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus knew. We had hearts of stone. Jeremiah 79. Here's what Jesus knew. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, which really, the word is really incurable. That's sobering. Who can understand it? Who can save himself or herself from it? Uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12 and verse 18. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, that's what Jesus is knowing about all of mankind since the fall of Adam and Eve. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. <clears throat> Here's what Jesus knows about all of us. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work. How about this for a name? Wouldn't you love to be known by this? Who are you? Oh, I'm a son of disobedience. How about this? It goes further. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And how about this? Here's another, another name for us. And who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So here's what I'm going to ask you. How does anyone get saved? That's just a smattering of what Jesus knew about the human heart. Okay, back to, Genesis, to, to John 3. Now in John chapter 3, we receive an astounding example of a man who believes in Jesus, yet does not, that Jesus does not believe in his belief. Jesus knows this man's heart, and everything we just read is this man's heart. And he knows that this man has not yet placed saving faith in Jesus for salvation, but instead was placing faith in his own Bible knowledge, his own good works, his own commandment keeping, his own position as a Pharisee or a member of the Sanhedrin. These were the things he was trusting in to save him from his sins. This is what, if, if, the, if the nomenclature would have been existent at that time, this is what, in, in terms of the Jewish culture and, and their terminologies, they, they would have thought this is what it meant to be born again. I don't know about you guys. I prayed a prayer when I was a senior in high school. Uh, it wasn't a prayer of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. It was a prayer that I'm lonely and I need someone to love me and I've got this really rotten life and I've had parents who hate each other and have beat each other up and I, I just need someone to love me. Well, God loves you dearly. And I, I pray, so dear God, please love me. I'll believe in Jesus if that's what's going to give me uh, a better life. Uh, I lived about nine months. And so here's what born again meant to me. Born again meant don't drink. Don't smoke, don't cuss, and don't sleep around. And, and guess who the focal point of all that is? Guess who's got to do that? I've got to do it. So that's kind of my Nicodemus moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the most moral dude I can be. Because that's what being born again is. No, no, it's not. Let's keep studying. Let's keep studying. So... 
he was a Pharisee. Let's, let's delve down a little bit into Nicodemus and how he is ignoring what his heart is really like with all of this commandment keeping and Bible knowing and, and all of these kind of things. So let's, let's get into this. He was a Pharisee. This would be the most zealous student of Scripture. This would be a scholar. This would be somebody committed to God's law. We, we think of Pharisees as the bad people. Almost like the, the Star Wars m- music for Darth Vader should, like you, you see the, the Pharisee come into the name. That's not it at all. That was not it at all. There were some hypocritical bad Pharisees. But you guys, this is not how, for sure Nicodemus would have been viewed. You would have followed Nicodemus on Twitter. You would have followed him on Twitter. If you've heard of the Together for the Gospel conferences, Nicodemus would have been the keynote speaker at Together for the Torah conferences. That's what he would have been. He was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. They were in charge of Jewish affairs. And they were delegated power by Rome to rule. And so they had authority over religious life, political life, and the national life of Israel. This guy was a rock star. Jesus would call him in verse 10, the teacher of of Israel. Meaning that some of the scholars think this. Please be thinking about this, guys. Some of the scholars think he had memorized the first five books of our Old Testament. Memorized. And Jesus is saying, and you ain't going to heaven in the condition you're in. If Nicodemus ain't getting in, sorry for my language, what chance do I have I, I get distracted praying after 30 seconds. Something else has got to happen for us to be saved. And there's really good news. Something does happen. He appears humble and respectful and acknowledges that Jesus is from God. He calls him rabbi. Comes to Jesus by night. So a lot of the scholars, commentators, said that, you know, John is a master of using imagery to communicate teaching lessons. And, and so it's no, they say it's no, uh, no just uh, colloquialism, no, no turning of a phrase to say he came by night. And he wasn't just looking at a clock. Night and light are, are amazing. I mean, we're going to see it in, just in John chapter 3. Um, and the, there's many that believe that what John was saying here is as, as, as religious as Nicodemus was, He was still in the dark when it came to being saved. He still had no clue of what it was to be a child of God through faith alone. Grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. So Jesus comes with verse 3. Unless one is born again. Jesus just cuts to the chase. And please... I don't know what your Bibles look like. You know, the red letters are not any more the word of God than the black letters, right? But notice the red letters in the section. Don't listen to Billy Ray's about this precious ones. Hear the voice of Jesus himself saying, you must be born again. You must be born again. And I'm not talking about cussing and drinking and sleeping around. I'm not talking about those things so that you can try to will yourself into God's favor. I'm not talking about that. 
Jesus knows Nicodemus is still dead in sin. And Jesus knows what the only way he can be born again and saved. He needs to depend upon a new birth. The, the terminology is literally born from above. So this is going to be a life that's coming from outside him into him. He needs to be changed internally. But how many of us have tried to do external things that would change our internal self? It doesn't work, does it? He's, you know, there should be some sense of desperation in this as we're studying this to think, oh my goodness, if the heart of man is like what we studied this morning, and if even memorizing five books of scripture isn't enough to cover all of that heart of man and to save that kind of a heart, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? There's supposed to be some sense of desperation and hopelessness that we feel in this. Depending on his religious knowledge and good works and morals, did you ever think about this? We're actually keeping him from the kingdom of God. I bet you know someone. You might have even been someone at that one point in your life. Your baptism actually was keeping you from being saved. You're walking the aisle and praying with the preacher. The little prayer that he, you didn't have anything in your heart happening. You just imitated what he said. And you're, you're praying this prayer with no evident change of life. is actually keeping you from being saved. It's almost, what do they say? An, uh, 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 like a vaccine is supposed to be. <laughs> it's supposed to give you a little bit of the, the real disease. So you won't, a little bit of the disease so you won't get the whole thing. Or I don't know. Phil, help me here. <laughs> Dr. Phil, please come to my rescue. But I think that's what happens, you guys. I think religiosity is like an inoculation. We, we get a little something of it, but it doesn't save us. I think that's what's going on here. There's somebody, it's like growing a thorn tree. And oh, I hate the thorn tree. I want an apple tree. So what am I going to do? I'm going to work harder on the thorn tree. I'm going to give more fertilizer to the thorn tree. I'm going to go to church more often to get that thorn tree to turn into an apple tree. I'm going to put money in the offering plate. I'm going to, I'm going to really try to be good when my test time comes. I'm going, to, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to prune the branches even. And all I'm getting is bigger thorns. <laughs> thorn tree's doing really well, <laughs> right? Haven't you, got, haven't you noticed that? When you, weren't, when you were not born again and you were just hoping good works would change your heart, the more you were doing them, it actually seemed like the more sinful you were becoming. The more you wanted to sin. The more you were facing laws and rules and regulations and it almost seemed to be stirring something inside of you that I don't want to do this. I want to be the captain of my fate. Someone who's dead in sin and transgression does not need a reformation of his life. He needs a transformation of his life. He needs a new life altogether. He needs regeneration is the doctrinal word in scripture. He needs a resurrection. So Nicodemus, verse four, bless this guy's heart. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And he's got this realization, this is good, that this new life is impossible for man to achieve on his own. He realizes that just as no one can achieve their earthly birth by themselves. Anyone, any of you just hanging out in heaven saying, 
it's time. The world needs me. <laughs> right? That's all right. First of all, that's all right. that is so doctrinally incorrect. You weren't alive before you were born, okay? <laughs> there was only one who was, and his name was Jesus, okay? You weren't alive before you were born. You didn't suddenly come out of heaven into your mother's womb. Um, he realizes even an earthly birth, I have no choice in it. It's something that happens to me and for me. I don't will it to happen. I don't will myself out of my mother's womb. I don't will myself into existence. You see, a man dead in sin cannot make himself alive. He needs a new birth from above. And so Jesus goes on to describe what that is. So, I, and again, I just didn't hear this when I was growing up. I, I heard born again and then people defined it the way they wanted to define it. How about we define it biblically? Here it is. I will sprinkle, ver oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to the cross-reference. So he says, unless you're born, verse 5, born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's using the same terminology about born again, and now he talks about born again to see the kingdom of God, born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. So you see the parallelism going on there. It's, it's the same thing happening. So born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. And oh my goodness, there's been all kinds of stuff said about this. That means, some people say, well, that means you're supposed to be born the first time just as a human fallen being and then uh, the second time as a spiritual being uh, because of Jesus. And that's not what it's saying. <laughs> um, sometimes some people say, well, oh, that's a foreshadowing of the role baptism would play. And no, that's not what it's saying here. Well, let, let's let the word explain the word. Uh, I've got it in you, so you don't have to turn there. It's in your notes. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is a foreshadowing of the whole born again experience. I will sprinkle, here's the, here's the water. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow, such good news. So do you see, here we have the water and the spirit. What do you need to be born again? You need to recognize I am hopeless and helpless and devoted to my sin. I'm hopeless and helpless to save myself. I'm devoted to my sin. I'm dead in sin. A dead person can't raise themselves. I am going to need a miracle from above to save me. I'm going to need a miracle from above. And that miracle above is named Jesus. He comes to us and he is the sprinkling of water. He's the only one that can cleanse us from all of our uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. That's great news. But see, this is where I think we've done some injustice to the text. I think we've talked a lot about the giving of forgiveness, the giving of forgiveness. That's what salvation is. Salvation is so much more than the giving of forgiveness. What else does he say? It's the gift of the Spirit. It's that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and, and 
makes us alive in order for us to be able to see the danger we were in. We were blind in sin. We needed someone to open our eyes. We had hearts of stone. We need someone to make our, our stony hearts soft. We were, we were not seeking for God. We, I mean, just everything that we read. And here comes Jesus, not just coming to die on the cross for our sin, but to, to do what? To change us from the inside out. Called a new birth. It's the Holy Spirit joining himself to your life. Have you experienced born again the way the scripture describes born again? Have you been forgiven? Have you looked to the Lord for the forgiveness only he can give you? And have you experienced the life of the Holy Spirit who is making you new from the inside out? Thank God for the word commenting on the word, right? Um, verse six, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's just talking about the origin of human birth are human parents, right? And they produce a human child that bears the image of its father and mother. The origin of a heavenly birth or a spiritual birth is the heavenly father. Heavenly Father, that produces a spiritual child, a born-again child, and it's a child made in his likeness. See, I think there's where a lot of this falling away stuff is happening, is that people go, yeah, I, I most needed forgiveness. You needed forgiveness, but you needed a new heart. You needed, you needed a, a way to be able to live the Christian life until Jesus comes. And that, that way was the Spirit joining himself to us to make us new. So please, I think this is an important... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So here, here's arrogance coming through your pastor. Because I'm about to quote myself, essentially. This is really silly. <laughs> but I think the thought is important. <laughs> when the Bible speaks of a new life, what, what do you think? I, God will give you a new life. That's everywhere. What do you think that means? God will give you a new life. Does that mean, oh, second chance? Yes. Me, who is on his 78,000th chance, didn't change me. So what's a second chance? How about a fresh start? Sounds good. Fresh start. Is that what this is about? This isn't about anything like that. The new life you receive is the life of Christ uniting himself with you. That's your hope of glory, right? Christ in you. Your hope of glory. It's not, oh, I hope I make it. No, no. Are you born again? Yes, by God's mercy and grace through the shed blood of Jesus I am. By the mystery of the Holy Spirit making me alive without me trying to make it happen. It's because he loved me and made it. Yes, I'm born again. Then isn't it great that Christ in you is your hope of glory? Oh, you guys. That's your biggest need, Nicodemus. Have you been born from above? Have you been born again by the regenerating and transforming power of the Spirit? Unless you've been born of the water and the Spirit, cleansed and forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross and the gift of new life, heaven will not be your home, Nicodemus. And then verse 7. Did you know your name is in verse 7? Look. Really. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till your heads are looking. Your name is in verse 7. You, we should love this in West Texas. <laughs> it's plural. Y'all. This isn't a Nicodemus problem. This is a sin problem. This is a Bible Belt problem. Everyone needs this. Everyone in every place at every time of history since Adam. I want, to, I want you to think about how many Nicodemuses are there attending churches today? Could there be a Nicodemus or two with us this morning? And if you are, welcome. So glad you're here. I was a Nicodemus. I'd love to talk about it with you. How many Nicodemus parents are raising Nicodemus children? All of them trusting in their own knowledge and zeal and commandment keeping and good works to will themselves into new life. So Jesus goes further and he says, he speaks about the wind. Again, we should really get this illustration here in West Texas. The word wind and spirit are the same word. The wind blows, the spirit blows. Speaking of the sovereignty, the sovereign grace of God in salvation. This new birth, you can't create it. You can't cause it. You don't increase it. Its origin is from above. And it comes through the vehicle of the gospel. That's how we're going to end this this morning. But you can sure see the effects of it, y'all. <laughs> may as well, if we're going to talk about West Texas wind, may as well say y'all. But you can see the effects of the wind. You can see what a difference it makes when, wherever it blows. Meaning that if the Holy Spirit has joined himself to your life, there should be a progressive and permanent change in your life. What kind of savior would God be to say, okay, I'm going to get you in. But you're going to have to keep yourself in. Sorry. I just thought of dating. <laughs> dating is the cutest thing. You know, she'll make a little mistake. But, and she'll be very quick. Go, Sorry, Papa. <laughs> Sorry, Papa. Wow. What, Jesus is a, such a better Savior than that, you guys. When God sends the Spirit to blow new life into dead sinners, you can see and experience the results. When the Holy Spirit brings new life into a sinner's heart, it produces a hunger for knowing Christ. It produces a desire to know the Bible and some sense of devotion to it. No, I'm not using any terms of perfection here. It's loving what he loves. It's hating what he hates. It's a desire to obey him. It's a desire to be with the people of God on Sunday mornings. It's a love for the church that he loves. It's a sorrow over sin. It's, it's, it's a desire to join him in his mission to make and mature disciples. To seek to glorify God in all things. It's, it's the Holy Spirit bringing into our lives the character of Christ so that we can grow in conformity with Christ in both his character and mission. You've seen the West Texas dirt devils. I hate to use the word devil in a good illustration, but it's the little mini tornadoes in West Texas, right? I mean, think of this. What a, what a beautiful illustration, Lord, about the wind blowing. We don't see where it's coming from, but boy, we see its effects. Here is this dust, this West Texas dirt that is immobilized, unable to raise itself. And here comes the wind. 
And it's amazing. It's not just any wind. It's not just an obnoxious blow all this stuff in your face wind. This is a spinning wind. This is a wind that catches the dirt up and conforms the dirt to its image. That's what it, that's just, I think that's just a sense of what it means to be born again. To be born of the Spirit. That God has God is indwelt you and is progressively working his will to make you like himself. And for those of you who are so disgusted with how slowly you're changing and how, how many times you stumble and how many times you confess your sin, isn't this good news? Because if that's how my salvation began, it's no wonder that God will finish what he started. Such good news. You guys, what's the proof that a child has been born into a family? Is the birth certificate the proof of life? Go ahead. No. It's a record of birth. The proof of life is crying. That's the proof of life. The proof of new life for the Holy Spirit is a cry of repentance. Toward God and faith, faith in Jesus. The proof that a baby is alive is the life of a baby. I don't know how many of you got beat up when you were younger. People saying, you don't know the date and the hour that you were saved. I don't know if any of you ever had that kind of thing. You're going, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm not saved. Well, do you have a hunger for the word? Yes, but I don't know the date and the hour. Well, do you, do you have a desire to reach people for Jesus? Yes, but I don't have the date and the hour. Oh my goodness. What's the proof of the new birth? The date and the hour? Or the changed life? That's the proof of the new birth. He goes on in verse 21 to emphasize that. Whoever has the light does what is pleasing to God. Because they were empowered by the Spirit to do those things. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And he says, jeez, Nicodemus? He probably didn't say jeez. He said... You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. You must not know your Bible as well as you thought. You ever read in Ezekiel? So remember what we, we were letting the Bible comment on itself? Ezekiel 36, right? Born the, the sprinkling, which is the forgiveness of Jesus because of the crucifixion and the empowering, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what chapter 37 is? Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Oh, this is where I wish I could introduce you to my dad. My dad would have been sitting here going, sing it, son. There's an old spiritual that talked about that. And you know what the picture was? There's this valley of dry bones. Could not recover from the death that they had. And what what did he say? Prophesy to the bones, son. And in the proclamation of God's word... The spirit blows. The breath comes. And those bones come alive. Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel. And you're not understanding that you have to be born again. Are you born again, guys? It comes as a gift of grace through the proclamation of the scriptures, of the gospel. I think so many churches 
place the focus on being born again, on depending on knowledge and effort and prayers and baptisms, commandment keeping. It's, it's sobering to think of how many churches today are filled with dry bones. How many churches today? They're well-organized dry bones. Those dry bones are drawn by the programs. Let's, let's just get, you know, they're dry bone programs. <laughs> oh, and, and oh, we entertain dry bones well in this church. Our worship is an entertainment for those bones. So, yes, yeah, so good, so good. Just well-organized, program-driven, dry bones. Well, Jesus says, you need to believe. You need to believe, and it comes as a gift of God's grace. And the way to believe in the love of God is to to focus on the crucifixion of Christ for our sins. So in verses 11 through 17, that's what I was telling you. In 10 verses, seven times it says to believe. So good question is, okay, what is saving belief? If, If Nicodemus had a belief that wasn't saving, what is saving belief? Well, verse 11, Jesus says, first of all, we speak of what we know, but you don't believe our witness that's interesting because you remember Nicodemus when he first comes to Jesus, he says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because of the signs that you do. We know. And this is where I think God just has this amazing loving sense of humor. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, we'll take your we know and we're going to raise it. We know some things that you don't know. He goes on and he says, he speaks of earthly things and heavenly things. How are you going to believe in the heavenly if you don't believe in the earthly? And then this is what Jesus knows. I think Nicodemus's problem was not just wrong beliefs doctrinally. I think he had it wrong about who Jesus was. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who had descended from heaven. The only one who can speak authoritatively about heaven is the one who's been there the one who made it, the one who's dwelt there with the Father and the Spirit, and that one descended to earth to bear witness of who he is and who man is and how man can be saved, and then to prove that his words are true and his sacrifice effectual, he ascends back up into heaven having paid the price for sin and having the Father accept his once-for-all sacrifice. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm the one you have to listen to. You're listening to so many other voices. You're listening to your political news commentators. You're you're listening to coaches. You're listening to teachers. And there's something to always be a learner. But who are you listening to that is most shaping your heart? Jesus says your, your issue is you're not listening You're not listening to me as the authoritative voice of your life. And so here's, I'm going to tell you what you must believe. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the stick in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, Verse 15, that whoever believes in the Son of Man may have eternal life. And you remember that story, the, the Israelites are just fed up with God again. He's not getting them what, the, what they wanted out of the world. And they, did, you, did you remember that they actually used this word, even the manna, the Israelites were saying to God, your manna is loathsome. Moms, 
what would you do? Your kids come to you after you've labored 12 hours over Thanksgiving dinner, and your kids say, this is loathsome. <laughs> what they're going to learn is the wages of sin is death. Danger, children. Don't do that at home. Don't do that at home. But actually, that's what the Israelites learned, wasn't it? The wages of sin is death. So God commanded the serpent to come. Actually, we're all snake bit, aren't we, in the garden? We, we've all been snake bit. But here they come. They're being bit by these poisonous serpents, and they're dying left and right. And so God gives them a foreshadowing of a substitutionary sacrifice that they needed. And they put... The, the serpent, a bronze serpent, which speaks of judgment. They put that on a pole and they raised it up. And this was the invitation. Look and live. <laughs> well, wait, don't we have to make up for calling manna loathsome? No, no, no. Look and live. Now, looking means you're humbling yourself and agreeing that God is right and you're wrong. That's what looking means. You're, you've broken his commands. You deserve the death you're seeing all around you. But only grace can save you. Look and live. And Jesus says, just as the serpent was raised up by Moses on a stick, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Oh, and he was high and lifted up, wasn't he? He laid his life down on that cross for you and me just because he loves you. And he was raised up. He was lifted up to hang between a holy God in heaven and sinful humanity on earth. And the full wrath and fury of God fell upon him instead of us. Look and live. And then he was buried. And on the third day, he was lifted up again. Now to say, the Father accepted my sacrifice you really can be fully and finally forgiven. And 40 days later, he was lifted up again to make intercession for us, to never stop praying for us so that God's plan would be fulfilled in our lives. And Jesus is saying, that's what this is about, Charlie Brown. So when you get to verse 16, for God so loved the world, you know, I'm so grateful. How many of you guys remember the Afro guy, the, the clown wearing, the, the multicolored wig, Afro wig? And the guy sat behind in the end zone of every major televised football game or baseball or whatever. And what was his big deal? He just held up John 3.16. Tim Tebow, when he was playing, he, on his eye black, John 3.16, John 3.16. And I love, I love that. Um, uh, in and out Burger, John 3.16, on the bottom of their cups. Forever 21, three, John 3.16 is in for, Forever 21. There's just a lot of 3.16s around. But do people understand what it means for God to love them? Is God just my problem solver? Is God just my doctor? Is God just my financer? No, God's my savior. Because I'm such a sinner. And I needed a sacrifice made for me. Take a peek at this in your notes. I, I, I kind of blended John 3.16 with Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. 
This is what it means for us to understand the love of God biblically. God so loved a sinful, hell-deserving world that he gave his son to be crushed, chastised, bruised, wounded, judged, and forsaken as though he were guilty of all of our sins. And whoever would believe in him and his sacrifice, not just Jews, but people from all ethnicities, would not perish forever in hell, but have eternal life. That's what it means to believe in in the love of God. Believe and receive, y'all. Look and live through the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit. The passage closes. It's really interesting because you'll see at the end, there's a warning. There's a warning for not believing. But what I found most fascinating about this, this warning in closing is that unbelief is not just that I'm, I'm an intellectual person and I've evaluated Christianity and I found it lacking. I think that's what a lot of us think unbelief is. It's an intellectual issue. That's not what the text says. The text says light was shining in the darkness of depravity. And people didn't come to the light, not because they had an intellectual problem with it, but because they loved the darkness more than the light. They loved their sin more than their Savior. That one hit me hard. It's not first an intellectual problem, the problem of unbelief. It's that our sinfulness makes us so devoted to ourselves. We love what we want. I think that should be part of the way we describe what the gospel is. Do you love your sin more than the Savior, Jesus Christ? That's unbelief. And that'll result in a righteous condemnation for your sins. Because you, you wanted your sin more. Kelly, my precious daughter and I were having a wonderful conversation yesterday. And she helped me to, to see this point that people are more grieved to give up their sin than they are grieved by their sin. Because they love their sin I think we should have heart-to-heart talks with people about that. Is it that you're really just intellectually rejecting Jesus or is it that you're loving things that perish as you use them? Just some points of application here. We can't control where the wind blows. God in his sovereign grace saves people because he's good. We don't understand who and when and why that happens. But we can be an instrument that God uses to blow the wind through. And it happens every time we share the gospel. Moms and dads, I, I, you know, by God's grace, our kids are saved. And I'm so thankful for whatever 
things that we did that were in accordance with his will and pleased him. But boy, there were so many things. I, I got so upset about their grades. I got so upset. I, I, or if they, if they got robbed of a call on the baseball field, I got so upset. I was, my kids could really tell where my treasure is because that was where my heart was. And they could tell. They could tell when dad was more passionate about an umpire's call than he is about the Savior who died on the cross for his sins. Your kids are watching. They're, they're, you're, you're catechizing your kids just by behaving the way we do. And I just, I just, if I could do it again, I still would have wanted to teach them. I would want them to, 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 to work hard in their studies. I'd, I'd want them to play for the glory of God on their baseball teams or sports teams. And I'd want them to learn a good work ethic. I'd want all of those things to happen. But I immersed my kids in those things. And if you were to do that, that kind of a thing about, I'm going to just check to see where the wind's blowing. If you were to do this, there wasn't a lot of wind blowing around my house. Because I was immersing them in the world. Not evil, but still the world. Trying to find some life and purpose and education and scholarships and a good job and a good wife and a good this and a good life. Without Jesus... But there's something miraculous that happens when we proclaim the gospel. The word and the spirit are great friends. And so we want to keep the gospel in front of people. Guys, what is our silence saying to Midland that we're not constantly sharing the gospel? God uses the gospel as an instrument by which his wind blows. That's how he brings people to saving faith. It's, the doctrine of election is not God just coming and personally saying, okay, you're saved. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're saved. He doesn't do that. It's a mystery. He uses his word proclaimed through his people to bring new life through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, what a passage. And uh, we're so grateful that you speak really directly to us and hopefully to us. We're so thankful that, that what you call us to, you provide. Lord, I pray that this morning, if you have by the preaching of your word taken a stony heart and made it tender, and desirous to follow Jesus and to love Jesus. Lord, would, would you just magnify your smile in their life? And we just are so thankful that you would use your word and spirit to save sinners. For the rest of us, Lord, help us never stop being amazed by the grace that is found in the new birth. May it always be our theme, this side of heaven and in glory. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Amen.